chapter number 11. 2 Samuel chapter number 11, and I'm glad that I can come to my church on a Wednesday night and see the auditorium full. Somebody just give the Lord a hand for everybody here. Amen. There's, uh, I get to travel to a whole lot of places, and sadly, sometimes what we see is uh, no enthusiasm and no excitement and just kind of the feeling that people are there out of some sense of duty, that they have to be there, so maybe God won't be mad at them or something. And then we come here, and, uh, and we see people that have a smile, that have a Bible in their hand, and that are eager and hungry and ready to learn something from God's Word. And I'll tell you something, there's a big difference, amen? And uh, let's keep that, let's be excited and invite our friends and our family because God is doing great and amazing things here at Temple. And I'm glad to be able to, uh, to enjoy that tonight with you and bring you this short message. Alright, 2 Samuel chapter number 11. I want to read in verses, let's see, I'm, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, And it came to pass... Uh, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I sure do love you, and I thank you for uh, this night, for these people. Thank you, Lord, for these verses in the Bible. And Lord, I pray tonight that you would just uh, clear our minds Help us to open our hearts and to hear from, from the Lord. I pray, God, that you'd bless me as I speak and teach and bless these as they hear. And Lord, uh, you know my heart better than anybody else, better than I know it myself. I pray, God, you'd cleanse me and just, uh, Lord, if there's anything that's between you and I that would hinder this uh, message from being exactly what God wants it to be, God, I pray you'd forgive me and cleanse my heart. Use us now for your glory. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. Uh, you can have a seat. Tonight, I want to talk to you on the subject of how to live with a bad decision. How to live with a bad decision. On December 13th, 19. 61, Mike Smith, who was an executive, um, traveled to Liverpool to watch a local rock and roll band perform. 
he decided that they had talent and he invited them to audition on New Year's Day, 1962. The group made the trip to London and spent two hours playing 15 different songs at the DECA Studios. Then they went home and waited for an answer about a possible recording contract. They waited for weeks. Finally, another executive named Dick Rowe, he told the band's manager that the label, they just weren't interested because they sounded too much like a popular group called The Shadows. In one of the most famous of all rejection lines, he said, uh, not to mince words, Mr. Epstein, but we don't like your boys sound. He said, groups are out. Four-piece groups with guitars are particularly finished. Well, some of you know this. That group was called the Beatles. They eventually signed with EMI Records, started a trend back to guitar bands, and ultimately became the most popular band of all time. Ironically, the executives um, with DECA, the, the, the EMIs, the one that the, the uh, producers that signed them, they were, their facilities became so stretched that they had to ask DECA and employ DECA just to help them um, with the production. This uh, executive, my, uh, Dick Rowe and Mike Smith, they made a horrible, horrible decision. They just blundered it. I read about some other ex- executives, John and Forrest Mars. These were the owners of Mars Incorporated, which is the big candy company, the makers of M&M's. In 1981, Universal Studios called Mars and they asked for permission to use M&M's in an exciting, what, what they would hope to be an exciting new film that they were making. This was and is a fairly common practice. It's called product placement. They take some product and they place it in a key point of, uh, of a movie and it provides filmmakers with some extra cash and it provides the, uh, the, the product makers with some exposure and some opportunity for uh, promotion. In this case, the director was looking for a cross promotion. He'd use the M&M's and Mars could help promote the movie. Well, the Mars brothers simply said, no, we're not interested. The film was E.T., the extraterrestrial, which was directed by, of course, Steven Spielberg. The M&Ms were needed for a crucial scene. It's a scene when Elliot, the little boy who befriended the alien, uses candies to lure E.T. into his house. Well, instead of M&Ms, Universal Studios went to Hershey's and cut a deal to use a, a, a new product that was hardly known at all called Reese's Pieces. Initial sales of Reese's Pieces had been light, but when E.T. became a top-grossing film generating tremendous publicity for E.T.'s favorite candy, sales exploded and they tripled their production of Reese's Pieces within months. The executive at Mars made a blunder, a bad decision. 
I wonder tonight, if you're like me, have you ever made a bad decision? I've got one more. Uh, Executive William Orton, he was the president of the Western Union Telegraph Company in 1876. Well, in 1876, Western Union had a monopoly on the telegraph, the world's most advanced communications technology at the time. Sounds funny uh, today with my iPhone sitting over there on the front row. But at the time, it was the most advanced. This made it one of America's richest and most powerful companies that would generate $41 million in capital in 1876. The pockets of the financial world were behind it. So when Gardner Green Hubbard, a wealthy Bostonian, approached Orton with an offer to sell the patent for a new invention, Orton treated it as a joke. Hubbard was asking for $100,000 for this new, to fund this new invention. Well... Orton bypassed Hubbard and drafted a response directly to the inventor. The inventor's name was Mr. Bell, B-E-L-L. In the rejection letter, he wrote, After careful consideration of your invention, while it is a very interesting novelty, we have come to the conclusion that it has no commercial possibilities. What, <laughs> what use could this company make of an electrical toy, he said in his letter. Well, the invention was the telephone. It would have been perfect for Western Union, but Western Union uh, uh, absolutely passed up that, and Mr. Bell went on to form his company, which was AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, and it became the largest corporation in America. Somebody made a bad decision. In our passage that we wrote or that we read tonight, we have King David. And we have a very crucial time in King David's life. And it was a time in his life to where he made a bad decision. And the bad decision was the verses we read. But I want to ask you this question tonight. Have you ever made one? Have you ever made a blunder? Now don't lie, you're in the house of God. Say amen. You know, there's two things that can happen when we make a bad decision. We can figure out how to continue life, or we can crawl in a hole somewhere and give up on life like so many have. And I know what I'm talking about here because for 17 years I have ministered to and dealt with people who were in the shape that they were in. And through counseling and through their own confessions, they would point back to a time in their life when they made one bad decision or one series of bad decisions. And 20 years later, they point back to that and they say, Brother Travis, it all started to go downhill when? Tonight I want to talk about how to live with a bad decision. I want to say this, every Christian here tonight can have life and have it more abundantly on the other side of a bad decision. Say amen. We can live, we can make it. You say, well how do we do that preacher? Well, 
we must adhere to the three principles that are found in this story about David and his sin with Bathsheba. Let me give you principle number one. Here it is. If we're going to live with a bad decision, we must first of all guard against one bad decision leading us into multiple bad decisions. David, um, and, and this was not his first bad decision in this episode in his life, but it's the most dramatic, and I think we can draw this story down to a point to where he, uh, to where the sin of adultery is what I'm going to call the initial bad decision. Before that, there was other bad decisions. There was the decision not to go to war where he should have been. There was the decision to stay home when his men were in the battlefield. But we won't go there. But let's look at the sin of adultery. Here David is, a great man of God and a great king. And he begins to look where he should not look. And he begins to lust. And the lust of his flesh and the lust of his eye overtook the good sense that he had in his heart. He made a bad decision, a wrong decision, and wound up in an adulterous sexual affair. But it did not stop there. To read on down in the rest of the story, the Bible says in verse 6 that David sent to Joab, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. You see, Uriah was the the husband of Bathsheba. And he was out doing what he was supposed to do. He was taking care of his business. He was fighting in the battle. He was doing right. And rather than confess, rather than King David confessing his sin, rather than he making things right, Between Uriah and between God, he stepped into another bad decision, which was the decision to cover up his folly and his foolishness. Can I say this to you? One bad decision, if we're not careful, will lead us to make many more that are equal or worse than the initial one. So David devises this plan. And the plan is to get uh, Uriah to come home and to lie with his wife so that if there was a conception, it could be pinned on him and he would walk away scot-free. Bathsheba would never dare say anything against the king anyway. But that plan did not work out. And the reason it didn't work is because of the character that Bathsheba, uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah displayed. He said, I cannot go in and lie with my wife while my brothers are out fighting the battle. I'll not do it. And so David went a step further. He devised a plan to have Uriah murdered. So now the sin of lust and the sin of adultery has snowballed into the sin of cover-up and murder. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do with me. And that's exactly what he wants to do with you. He wants our one bad decision to turn into many bad decisions. 
Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 12. It says, let not therefore sin reign in your mortal bodies. And the word reign simply means to rule. It means to control. It means to have rule over. And so what Paul, the great apostle, was saying when he said, let not sin therefore reign, he was saying, don't let it continue. Don't let it have a platform in your life. Don't let it get a hold of you to where in the power of the flesh you can't shake it off. You say, well, how could sin reign over me? How could sin rule in my life? The answer is not coming to God and getting straight one small bad decision. Say, how do I guard against not letting one bad decision lead to another bad decision? Well, two thoughts here. Number one, we must not pretend. We must not pretend that, number one, that God is not concerned about our sin. And we must not uh, uh, pretend, number two, that our sin is not grievous in the sight of Almighty God. I have no idea what was going on in the mind of the king as he lied with Bathsheba. I don't know. I don't know what was going on when he devised a plan to cover this up and have Uriah killed. I don't know, but I'll tell you what I do know. I know the craftiness of Satan. I know the evilness of Satan. I know that he'll stop at nothing to cause God's men and God's women and God's children to fall and to fail and to come to a place in their life where they absolutely have no courage to continue. And so we can't pretend. And number two, we must not procrastinate. If I'm going to guard against one decision leading to multiple decisions, what I have to do is immediately, as soon as I understand and realize in my heart that I've done wrong, I must repent. For the person that struggles with alcohol, and they've, they've, been, they've done great for a week or for two, and then they've worked hard all day and they get off work and it's, it's hot and they feel like, you know, I deserve a cold drink. And on the way home, they, they drank one beer. It's that one beer that breaks the moral plane in their mind. And they reason with themselves and they say, well, I've already got alcohol on my breath. I've already bought this one. And how many of you know this? It's easier to go the rest of the way when you've already began the journey. For the person that struggles with pornography, they click on one email that contains an illicit link. They look at one picture. And the moral plane in their mind moves further. And through that one link or that one picture or that one statement maybe, they cross the moral plane. And it's so much easier to say, well, if I've gone this far, I may as well take another step. And David let his guard down. Let me ask you this question tonight before we move on. 
what do you do? Do you have a plan in your life to guard against one sin or one bad decision? And by the way, a bad decision doesn't always have to be some horrible sin. It can just be a, a lapse in good judgment. But do you have a plan in your life for your go-to uh, 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 methods or your go-to action for when you realize you made a blunder? Think about that. I remember one time in my life when I was uh, 16 years old, and I made a stupid decision. It's kind of comical now that I look back upon it, but it could have landed me in jail. Um, I grew up in Fort Pierce, Florida, same place that uh, Preacher Malcolm uh, is from. And if you've ever been down there, you know there's gators swimming in every mud puddle there is. And I grew up in the country. I grew up raising uh, steers and hogs and 4-H. And I grew up hunting and fishing and all that good stuff. And I had turned 16. I got a truck. I got a 1988 or 87 Dodge Dakota. And, man, I, I could go fishing when I wanted to. I could do these things on my own, you know. And, and uh, me and my buddy Brian... We went fishing in this pond, and man, we was out there fishing, and the biggest alligator you ever did want to see came swimming by. Matter of fact, we got looking, they was everywhere. And it was late in the afternoon, and, and, uh, and I don't know if it was Brian's idea or my idea, probably mine because I had the dumbest ideas, but we finally, we devised a plan to come back late that night and get us one of them gators. I had a 22 rifle that, that uh, my daddy had bought me, and it wouldn't be my first time to, to, uh, to take a gator. I mean, I'd shot many of them before with my dad and different things, but this was going to be my first time ever going out on my own and doing it on someone else's land. So we devised our plan. We met up that night like 10 o'clock, and we got our flashlights, and we got our rifle, and got in my new truck, and we went to the spot. And sure enough, as soon as we turned on the light, if you've ever been gator hunting at night, which I hope you hadn't, I guess, but uh, there was those orange eyes. And we found one that was not far from the bank, and we took aim, and boom, it rolled over. And many times what they'll do, they'll roll over, and you got a minute or two, then the air or the gases or whatever in them will release, and they sink to the bottom. And it started to sink. Well, we didn't really have a plan for how we was going to get it to the shore. So I jumped in, blue jeans, shirt, program, boots and all, and I was just going to walk out there. It was pretty shallow, so I thought. Come to find out, the whole, uh, the whole little pond had about a 15 to 20 foot canal dug out the, around the, the sides of it. So the first few feet was over my head, and I finally grabbed a hold of this dumb thing and about drowned, and, uh, and one thing led to another, but we got it up on the bank. Then, it was time to go home with this beast. Now, I lived at that point in my life, it was a bad time in my life, I lived in the city. <laughs> and we got to thinking, now, how are we going to get this thing back home? It's like 15 miles home. And Brian said, well, just put him in the back of the truck, man. That's what pickup trucks are made for. And so we throwed him in the back of the truck, and we got to getting out, and, and we were still on the dirt road. And I got to thinking, you know, wait a minute. What if we get pulled over or something? 
this ain't going to work. And so we got out, we're studying this situation. There's this seven-foot-long alligator and blood everywhere and nastiness everywhere in the back of the truck. And one of us had a bright idea to put him in the toolbox. (laughs) Yeah, that's just dumb. So we open up my brand-new diamond plate toolbox. I had carpet in the bottom and everything. And we commenced to shoving this gator and stuffing him in there. And we got his head all the way to one end, and his tail was sticking out the other end, so we wrapped the tail around, and we closed the lids, and we went home. We figured even if we got pulled over, we're safe. They won't see nothing. Well, we made it home safe. It was like a Friday night, and uh, the next day was Saturday, and we didn't have school or nothing, and I was 16 years old, and you know what you do on a Saturday when ain't nothing going on? You sleep. It was like lunchtime before I woke up the next day. And Brian was my next door neighbor. He lived right across the street. Finally, about, about 11, 30, 12, he comes pounding on my window. Man, get up, get up. And I woke up. He said, man, did you get the gator and skin him last night? I said, oh, no. And this was South Florida. 100 million degrees by lunchtime. And when we went out there and we opened up the the uh, the toolbox on the driver's side, the stench alone knocked us to the ground. It was awful. I had that truck for two more years. And the smell, God is my witness, the smell in that truck never left. It just, we bleached it, we used soap, we used SOS pad. It would not come out. And I went around stinking for two years. Flies just hovering around this vehicle. Why? Well, because one dumb decision to go gator hunting led to the dumb decision of stuffing a reptile inside the toolbox. My one bad moment led to many. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a moment in your life, a mishap, have you ever had a time in your life where, where you made the wrong choice and then it led to multiple wrong choices? Number two, the first principle is guard against one bad decision leading to multiple or many bad decisions. Number two, the second principle, how to live with a bad decision is this. Learn to blame yourself. Learn to blame yourself. The Bible tells us in in chapter number 12, one of the grandest passages of Scripture probably in all the Bible is chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. The Bible says in verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Nathan was a messenger of God. And Nathan comes to David and he begins to tell David this story. Uh, You could call it a parable. And he tells this story and and he, he says that there was two men in one city. He said one was rich and the other was poor. And he goes on to say, the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, 
which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Verse 4 says, A traveler came unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb. So here Nathan begins to tell this story to, to David. He says this one rich man, he had everything. But this poor man, all he had was one lamb and it was a pet. And he tells David, he said, the wayfaring stranger came by and the rich man wouldn't share his goods. So he took the one pet, this lamb, from the poor man. And he goes on through this story and the Bible tells us that David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And in verse 7 of chapter 12, Nathan said to David, thou art the man. You see, what Nathan was doing was drawing a word picture. And the reason he did that is because no one dared speak to a king and directly call out his sin. He wouldn't have made it very far. But he drew this word picture and he got the agreement of the king that this man, whoever he is, this rich man, he has sinned. He's worthy of death. And when Nathan said, thou art the man... Oh, how conviction must have fell. Oh, how God's word, spoken through Nathan, must have pierced his heart. And he was, all of a sudden, summoned back to a spiritual reality. That the adultery and the cover-up and the lies and the murder had been sin against his God. And a wonderful thing happened. In verse 13, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned. Probably the number one thing that I deal with when I am working with people in the homeless shelters and many times on the streets, I deal with a mentality Uh, we call it a victim mentality. Which is a a, a very uh, sad thing. A victim mentality, someone with a a wrong uh, victim mentality, everything happens to them. And they perceive everything in their life to have happened to them as a wrong. And some things do happen. There are many victims in life. Say amen right there. There just are. Bathsheba was a victim. Uriah was a victim. But in this story, King David was not a victim. He was guilty. And I have sat across the the desk 
from so many people. I've sat on the bus beside people. I've sat on the, the curb beside people. I've sat, I've sat under the bridge beside people or in the homeless camps, in a tent beside people or on a five-gallon bucket turned upside down beside people. And I have heard everything out of their mouth except it was my fault. And can I say this? If we don't learn to blame ourselves for our own decisions, whether good or whether bad, God cannot work in our life. If you want to hinder the work of God in your life, then pretend like it wasn't your fault. Act as though you had uh, uh, no involvement and act as though there was no wrong conscious choice or there was no sin. Just act as though you're always the victim. David said this, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord hath also put, put away thou sin and thou shalt not die. Which infers, which infers that had David continued to cover up, had David continued to, uh, uh, to, to elude facing up to the facts, God's plans for him could have been drastically changed. I remember when I was a little boy, probably 10, I had a... One of these Daisy Pump Master BB guns. Y'all remember them? I bought Hunter, my son. I bought him his first BB gun when he was three. Brought it home. I was so well. I was preaching revival down in Blackshear, Georgia, and I I was at this fishing store, and they had a special on these BB guns, you know. And uh, and Jeff, I'm like, hey man, my boy needs a gun. He's like three years old. And I brought it home, and I'm like, I fill it with BBs. I pump it up real good. Here you go, son. And my wife said, what are you doing? He's three years old. I'm like, I think I was about three when I got my first one. But anyway, when I was about nine or ten, I had my fourth or fifth BB gun. And, and I was in the backyard one day, and, man, we lived, like I said, in South Florida, and there was everything in the world to shoot at. I mean, there was birds, there were snakes, there was armadillos, there was rabbits, there was, you name it, it was there. We lived in the middle of a citrus grove. And my dad, for some reason, he bought him an old Volkswagen Beetle. He was going to fix it up. I knew he never would, but he was going to. That was the plan. He parked it in the backyard parallel on the outside of the chain link fence. And, uh, Man, day after day would go by, and I'd be out in the yard with my BB gun, and man, day after day would go by, and I knew he wasn't going to do nothing with that Volkswagen. And how many of you know this? If you've ever owned a BB gun, you want to shoot a window out. You just do. (laughs) It beckons you. And I had that pump-up one. You're supposed to pump it like eight times. I'd pump it like 800 just to see how, you know. And I remember one day I thought, you know what? There's no way my dad is ever going to make this thing run. He's too busy. I'm going to see if I pump this thing up like 20 times if it'll break that window. And, man, I can remember like it was yesterday. I pumped it up. I took dead aim like from the back porch. 
and aimed it at the driver's side window. And I pulled that trigger, and no sooner did I pull that trigger, did that entire driver's side window shatter and fall in the seat. And then I had second thoughts about my decision. I thought, oh, my goodness, Dad was going to be home soon, you know. Uh, so I ran inside. I put my BB gun up in the closet, throwed some clothes off it, over it so it would be like I hadn't used it in a few days. It was about third week of, mid, about mid-December. A day went by, then another day, then a, like a week went by, and he hadn't said nothing. Man, I thought I was off scot-free. Then Christmas Eve came around. And my dad, he liked to build a fire out in the, in the cooker, whether he was cooking something or not. He'd build a fire and just sit out by the fire. Uh, and it was Christmas Eve, and he had a fire going. Just had gotten dark. And I went out there, and I was going to sit with Dad by the fire. Got out there, and I just did get warm. And he looked over at me, and he said, Son, you got anything to tell me about? And I wasn't thinking about the window at this point. I said, no, I don't know, Dad. It's Christmas Eve. I'm excited about tomorrow. He said, are you now? I said, I sure am. He said, you want to tell me about the window in my Volkswagen? And all of the excitement of Christmas left me. You would just have to know my dad. I mean, it just... Instant fear and trembling, you know. I said, what are you talking about, Dad? He said, I think you know what I'm talking about. Do you care to tell me? And I said, well, I'll tell you. And I went into this big story. I said, Dad, you know how bad them black snakes are around here. <laughs> I said, he probably believed, he probably bought this just like you are now. I said, Dad, you know, the other day I was in the backyard and I looked out and I saw one of them black snakes and he was on the top rail of that fence. And I know how you hate them black snakes, Dad. And I shot at him and I missed it and it ricocheted. And I'll admit it to you, it did hit that window. He said, he said, is that right? I said, yeah, I, sh I guess I should have told you earlier. I said, but don't you worry, I'm steadily hunting that snake. <laughs> and I really can't remember, like, remember this like yesterday. He said, okay. He said, that's pretty good. He said, now sit down in that chair right there. And uh, he said, I'm going to give you one more chance. <laughs> Tell me about that window. And this time he wasn't playing. I looked up at him. And I began to say something. He said, let me say this. He said, I'll make a deal with you. He said, the deal is if, if, if you'll tell me the truth, I'll tell you the truth. Now, it's your choice. Man, it seemed like hours. I was thinking, oh, man. Should I stick with my story? Or should I fess up? And then I looked up at Dad, six foot four, 245 pounds, deputy sheriff, cowboy hat, 
John Wayne in the flesh. And I decided to fess up. I broke down squalling like a baby. And I said, Dad, I'm sorry. There wasn't no snake. I just wanted to see it uh, if it would break it. And, and I just bawled. If my dad tells you this story, he'll swear that I begged him and said, you wouldn't spank your son on Christmas Eve, would you? I don't remember saying that. But that night, my dad was not saved. Matter of fact, he was far from it at that point in his life. He is now. But that night, he taught me, it's way better to own your mistakes and own your sin. I learned as a 10-year-old boy to blame myself. What amazes me is the 40 and 50 and 60-year-old people that have never learned that lesson. And can I say this? God's not going any further in your, to help you grow as a child of God until we learn to blame, blame ourselves. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son went to his father, and here's the problem. He wanted what his father could give him more than he wanted his father. He took the inheritance and the Bible says he wasted his substance with riotous living. Wound up in the hog lot. And the Bible says this. It says when he came to himself, he thought to himself, he said, How many hired servants does my father have? How many servants are there that they're eating good? And here I am starving to death and about to eat the husk of the corn after the swine. So he did this. He devised a plan. He said, I will rise. I'll go to my father and I'll say to my father, Father, I have sinned. When did business turn around for the prodigal son? When he owned his bad decisions. And business will turn around for you and I only when we take ownership of our bad decisions. Now here's the good news. The Bible says that if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not a hope so. It's not a think so. It's not a maybe so. If we'll own our sin and come to God, he will forgive. Amen. I read a, a quote today that I thought was great from an older writer. He said, never yet has God spurned a lowly, weeping, penitent, and never will he, while God is love, and while Jesus is called the man that receiveth sinners. What that's saying is that if we'll come to God, and if we'll own our bad decision, if we'll own our mistake, He'll forgive us. You can take it to the bank. So principle number one is guard against one bad decision leading to multiple bad decisions. Principle number two is learn to blame yourself. And lastly, principle number three, we must be willing to let go of what our bad decision has produced. 
this could be the hardest principle. This could be the most grievous principle. But I want to show you something. Out of the sin, the affair, I guess you would call it, with, with Bathsheba, she was with child. And when Nathan came to David and called him on the carpet, Nathan said, now this is what's going to happen. The child that she has conceived is going to die. And in the process of time, the Bible tells us in chapter 12, let's see, verse 16, that David therefore besought God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth. But he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. So for seven days David fasted and prayed and asked God to save the life of his child. Verse 18 said, it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. So, what his bad decision produced died. What happened next was amazing to me. The Bible says that the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. And here's why. And verse 18 tells us this. Verse 18 says they got together and they're like, man, David has been so sorrowful. He's been mourning so much. He's been fasting. He ain't moved off the floor face down. He's been praying. If we tell him that the child has died, it says this. There's no telling how he will vex his soul. That means they were fearful for the downward spiral that David would fall into when he found out that this child died. Well, the Bible says that David heard them whispering. And when he heard them whispering and saw them whispering, he perceived in his spirit that the child had died. The Bible tells us in verse 20 that David arose from the earth. He washed. He anointed himself. He changed his apparel. And he came into the house of the Lord, and this is absolutely stunning to me. It says, and he worshipped. He worshipped. How do you worship when the child died? You have to be willing to let go of what your bad decision has produced. How do you do that? Number one, acceptance. Nathan told him that the child would die. But and, and David even says this. He said, while the child was yet alive, there was a chance. He saw that there might be a chance. He was praying that God would have mercy and be gracious. But what God said, God meant. And it came to a point in his life where he realized what God said came to pass. And he had to accept it or deny it. And acceptance, how many of you can, te can testify, accepting these type of things is hard to do. 
in some of the counseling material I, I've studied, it talks about uh, Ross's uh, five stages of grief model. And she put forth in like the 1960s that there's five stages to, to grief and loss. One of them stages is denial. One of them stages is anger. One of them stages is blaming. One of those stages is depression. And one of them stages is acceptance. And it's not a, you have to be angry first, then deny. Those stages can happen to a grieving person in any order. But the theory says that usually acceptance is the last stage and what carries someone from their grieving back into normal life where they can function like they did before. And David came to the place where he realized God has done what God said he was going to do and I must accept that. So when we're willing to let go of what our bad decision has produced, number one, there must be acceptance. Number two, there must be adoration. The Bible says that he went to the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Doesn't that sound a lot like Job? When the bad news came to Job that his lands and his cattle and all of his possessions and even his children died, the first thing Job did was fall down in the ash heap and worship. Listen to this. He went to acknowledge the hand of God in his affliction and to humble himself under it and to submit to his holy will in it. You see, in order for us to move from the product of our bad decision, and I don't know what it, what it might mean. Uh, you know, for these executives, it was missing billion-dollar contracts. And it was, it, you know, for Mars, it was missing the, the spot of a lifetime for their company. I don't know what it is for you. I, I know what it is for me. But in order to move past the grief and the loss of that to going on in victory with Christ in our future, we must accept and we must adore. Listen to this. Weeping must never hinder worship. Isn't that something? That's hard to grasp. Weeping must never hinder worship. Let me give you a real life example. I had a very good friend named Daryl. And Daryl came to our mission in Augusta and he got saved. And he was a bad alcoholic. He, he straightened up and was sober for six to seven months. We, did a, we built a 7,000 square feet women and children's uh, addition. Daryl hung every board of sheetrock in the place. He painted the whole place. He was really striving in his Christian life. Me and him became pretty good buddies. But Daryl had seriously damaged his relationship with his wife. Years of abuse, years of going to jail every other week, years of alcoholism. He had done irreparable damage. As in, no possible way of fixing this thing. And everyone close to the situation knew it, except Daryl. 
And Daryl, every time you got around him, if you talked to him for more than 10 minutes, he would go back to this point in his life where he really started messing up. And then the conversation would always turn to his wife, to his ex-wife. And it would always come full circle to how he could not live his life knowing the mistakes that he made. And even though he went to church pretty regularly, even though he had fellowship with other believers, even though he had as much opportunity as anyone, he never would let go. I remember one night it got so bad, he asked me to pray for him, and we knelt in the parking lot, and for 35 solid minutes, I prayed for this man as hard as I could. I remember seeing his tears on the asphalt. Like puddles. It'd be like pouring out a 20-ounce water bottle. And I counseled him and, 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 and gave him solid advice. And after that prayer meeting, he stood up. He said, I just can't get past this. And he walked away to go buy a beer at the corner store. And he hadn't been sober for a three-day period since. And every one of us said, why? What, what's wrong with Daryl? Why, why does he? And he'll tell you. He just couldn't let go of what his bad decision had produced. But here's the Bible fact. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful that when you're tempted, he will also make a way of escape. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, Daryl had options, but he would not take them. I wonder tonight, what about you? Will you learn to live with bad decisions? You see, the Lord wants us to be victorious. You say, did David get over this? Oh, yeah. He went on to have Solomon. God did great things with this man. And his sin had consequence, but his life was not over. And neither is yours when you make a mistake. And neither is mine. Even when the sin is grievous, God has a plan. And we can live after a bad decision. Somebody say amen. So the question tonight is this. Will you apply these three principles? Don't let one mistake lead to many. Let's learn to blame ourselves. And if God has said to let go, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and let go and go with God. Amen? All right. Let's all stand. We're going to have a word of prayer. And tonight we need to pray. I have a prayer request here for Front Street Baptist Church in Statesville, North Carolina. If you saw the news, you know they had a church bus that I think was headed back from Gatlinburg area, Tennessee, and from what I understand, full of senior citizens, and they were in a horrific accident, eight people were killed in this accident today, because a bus tire blew out, 
And uh, we need to pray for these folks. So I wonder tonight, in just a moment, I wonder if we could find some people that just pile up in the altar and beg God on their behalf. And maybe, maybe you've saw yourself in one of these principles. Maybe you want to come and just do business with God. Why don't we do that right now? Why don't we come? Let's